This is the Transforming Basketball Podcast, and I'm your host, Alex Sarama. This is the podcast where we help coaches and practitioners change the way we think about basketball performance. Our goal is to create the ultimate resource to help make sense of how contemporary skill acquisition ideas can be applied within the basketball world. Throughout the podcast, we'll unpack how an ecological dynamics framework alters our perspective of the game. If you're ready to join us in our quest to transform the basketball world, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to the Transforming Basketball Podcast. Delighted to be joined by Tom Parry today from the UK to Indiana. Tom is a professor at Indiana University, Kokomo. And really, I think Tom's going to be such an interesting guest because he's at the confluence of both the research and its practical application. And Tom's done a lot of work in soccer, football for our European audience. And it's just going to be a great conversation today. So Tom, thanks so much for joining the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I've asked this question a few times to different guests on the podcast. And I think it's always interesting because we get so many different replies. And I think it's so useful for people to connect this idea. So this is the question, Tom, if, if you were to maybe meet a coach for the first time, who was being exposed to an ecological dynamics framework, how would you even describe what this is in layman's terms? Is there any maybe low hanging fruit that you would use to introduce this to them? Yeah, like I think most people are going to come from like a traditional background, right? Like how we've been taught in school, how we've been kind of taught and coached in our sports. It's been very influenced by cognitive psychology. So yeah, we we believe in that there's a, a right way to do something. We need to do repetitive kind of practice to master that. And then the magic happens and somehow that transfers to the game, right? So for me, it's like getting them away from the idea of, just practicing actions alone doesn't help, right? Like like every action is tied to a decision. It's tied to that perception. Again, what we would call perception action coupling, right? How do you design practice activities that involve decision-making and the actions that you're looking for kind of in the game? So like, I feel in, in those conversations, like it, it kind of puts the emphasis back on them of really, like, how would you design activity? Like, what are you trying to do? And then we can kind of work through it together. So you're showing something that is applicable to what, what they want to do. But again, under that kind of broad umbrella of combining actions and decisions together and not doing them separately. Love it. That's so nicely put. And on this note, something we hear a lot, both of us, because we've spoken about this, is the idea of fundamentals first. And we get this a lot in both our sports where coaches say, you know, I like what this is, but don't they need fundamentals first? And then we can add chaos complexity later. I just got one today where someone said, they said, you can't ask someone who can't walk to run a marathon. And we get that a lot. What would you say to that, Tom? Yeah, like I, I know someone who wrote a really good blog about fundamentals and functionals. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, it, it's really common, right? Like, like for us, we're both invasion sports, right? Like so basketball and soccer are a lot more alike than people would probably realize. But again, like the, the passing, dribbling, shooting, right? Those are the, the three fundamentals in, in our sports. I say something, I said this in my class yesterday, in my motor development class. Like if you look at elite sport, if there was one correct kind of fundamental technique, they would all shoot, pass, dribble exactly the same way. 
And they just clearly don't, right? So, so even at the top level of performance, you're seeing that there's such variability in how they're solving movement problems. And again, even some of the people that we probably laud, right, and say, oh, you know, this person's so good, they're the ones that are the most adaptable, right, that have loads of different solutions and find a functional way to perform. Like Steph Curry is a great example, right? Like everyone thinks he's amazing, he's a, he's a great player, but he does things that are a little bit different, right? And again, it, it's unique to his organismic constraints, like his size, his strength, etc. His shots changed over time, if you, if you look at it carefully, because he was quite a skinny kid in, in college. And then now he's obviously been working with trainers and stuff for a long time. Well, because those organismic constraints are changing, his functional movement solutions, functional movement behavior also changes, right? Because now I might see different affordances that I didn't see before, right? different opportunities to solve that problem. Awesome. And on that note, I think it's really interesting that you raise the example of Steph Curry, because I use him a lot too, because one of the great examples of an adaptable performer. But I saw an interesting video a couple months ago where he was talking about his shooting form and about the biomechanical positions for what's correct. And then it was actually very apparent because they showed him shooting after and how he shot was actually completely different to what he said in the videos. Is that something you've seen a lot where maybe it's, I guess it's Gibson's idea of, you know, knowledge about versus knowledge of, but we see a lot of players verbalize things, but then what they're actually doing is very different. Yeah, there's a, there's a really good, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think it was like a Russian sprinter, like a classic example of this. He had like a really good sprint start, right? I think he might be like a 200 meter runner or something like that. And so he like taught people, like he went out, did kind of symposiums, like this is the way you do the start. And then someone found videos of him starting and kind of compared it to what he was saying. And he wasn't doing what he was teaching, right? Like the, there was a real mismatch between that and yeah i think that's a that's a good example like being able to describe what to do isn't the same as doing it right and i think that's a really hard thing for some coaches to kind of get across like you can have players that can say oh yeah i need to do this right like but then actually producing the action because it's driven by the interaction with information in the environment they perform differently right i think there's a lot of that like as a as a misconception I think sometimes coaches fall into that because, again, their own experience, right? Like, well, I was coached this way, so therefore, like, I mean, that must be right because then yeah. it's, that's tied to me, right? Like, the, the way I was taught and how I played, it's quite personal, right? So yes. it's really hard to kind of change, and sometimes we need to take a step back. I, you know, I said to some young girls like my uh, my youngest daughter's age like you nine right so these kids are like eight years old and i said i was just like i don't think you should go to like one-on-one -on -one training like i don't believe in that we have places near us that are like agility training or technical training and, and stuff like that they they use technology because it's shiny and fun and that kind of stuff and i said i was like i don't think that's a good use of your time or money I was like, I said, I got grass. I wasn't rich when we grew up. We grew up very working class kind of like area. And I used to just go to a field and do different stuff, right? Like I'd try and hit a, a traffic cone, like in the middle of the field, go chase the ball, try and hit it again. I was like, and I actually became a much better technical soccer player when I was coaching because I had a ball at my feet all the time and I'd try different things. I'd explore different ways to do it. So now when I play... I can do things that people are like, wow, like, 
how do you do that? It's like, because I've just been messing around, right? Like I've not been taught. I've kind of given myself the opportunity to explore how many ways I can solve this problem, right? I think that's a really key component for coaches is you're not as important as you think you are, right? The problems you set are the most important things, right? And sometimes we need to kind of not get in the way, I think is really important. I love that. That's a great line. So you're in a unique situation, I'd say, Tom, because you're researching and you're doing a lot of work in that field. But when you're really living this in terms of you're doing a lot of sessions on court with kids of different abilities and ages, what would you say maybe are some of the reasons there is this gap that exists right now between the research and the practice? And maybe, I guess, a two-part question, are there any solutions that you maybe thought of to help kind of reduce this gap a little bit and really get more practitioners understand the research, but also, I guess, the other way, you know, getting researchers, I guess, maybe I don't want to say more attuned to what where practitioners are and what they're doing, but maybe finding a way to get this kind of message across. Yeah, like Keith David's made a really good statement on a podcast or some presentation I watched. He said, like, coaches' experience is really useful, right? Like, we're not going against, it's not like academics versus coaches, like we're we should be in, and we are trying to work together to make things better, right? By not accepting the, the status quo, we've always done it this way, right? Like I, I want evidence. I want you to tell me, look, like this works in this way, what we're trying to do, which again, ultimately for all sports is transfer to the game. So like, I like the idea of we've got to value each other. And I feel that there are more academics now there are, val- there are people involved in coaching, like myself. So like we obviously value the coaching side, but I feel there's a, there's a lot more of that from the academic side. And it's like really just getting or convincing coaches to be more open, to be like, okay, well, like, tell me about this stuff. I've heard you talk about this stuff and you've sent me some things, but like I'm kind of interested. Like just open that door, right? And there's lots of people that are more than willing to help and kind of discuss those ideas. What I've started to do in America for soccer, there's a big kind of coaching organization. It used to be the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, NSCAA, changed to United Soccer Coaches now, right? So they do like a conference where the MLS draft is done, right? At their kind of, they have presenters of all sorts of different people up there. So I presented once there based on a paper that I wrote in like their magazine. I was finding the same thing. It was like, maybe a bit disillusioned with academia, right? Of like, you know, no one cares about this stuff that we're writing, right? Like, I need to get it into the hands of people who are at the coalface, right? And yeah, and there's paywalls to journal articles, right? So that makes it a little bit more difficult too. They're hard to read sometimes, right? Particularly for complex kind of movement behavior. So they have a, a publication called Soccer Journal and they have some stuff in there that's like in classic soccer blurb things. Uh, but I reached out to the editor and said, hey, this is my background, kind of got a foot in both camps. Like I teach at the university level, I coach like three days a week and then on the weekend, I'd like to write some papers kind of bridging the gap between science and practice. So I went to where the coaches are, really kind of worked on presenting some of these ideas in maybe a bit watered down, but like at least some of the concepts and have some practical applications of it. Anyhow, I've had some people reach out and be like, oh, I read that. It was really interesting. Like, do you have time to talk? Or we've gone back and forth on email. But again, it's like you're getting the ones that have opened the door to let that happen. 
I work in the biggest soccer club in Indiana, right? Like we train at a facility that has 30 plus fields, full size fields, right? It's like, it's insane. But very few people are, are kind of like open to that because hey, I don't know why, but like maybe they look at me as a threat that I'm challenging the status quo, right? Like, oh, we shouldn't be doing it this way that we think is right. And instead of looking at it as what's right for the kids, we're looking at it as I don't want my ideas to be wrong. So therefore, I'm just going to ignore those ideas. And like, no, like for me, it's all about the kid. If someone comes out and does a great research project, says, hey, the constraints-led approach in ecological dynamics is a load of rubbish, and they present a good case, I'll stop believing in it, right? Like I, I, I will follow the evidence every single time. Such a good point. So something I've seen a lot of, I'd say, especially in the last three years, is ideas from the classroom trying to be applied to sports coaching. And that's, I've spoken about it a few times, but what we've seen a lot of is terms such as, I guess, working versus long-term memory, retrieval practice, forgetting curves. And, you know, I've been quite critical of that just because it doesn't align with an ecological approach. And I think coaches, it can be very difficult because it comes across like it's science and it sounds like it's evidence-based, but obviously it's very different with the ideas that we believe in. So what are your thoughts on that and kind of any advice you'd have for coaches who have been really heavily influenced by those ideas? Yeah, again, like there's some good things in education, right? Like, and there's people doing all sorts of different work. It's just what's been accepted by the mainstream, again, has been really driven by this kind of cognitive psychology framework, right? Could you just explain that, Tom? Just sorry to interrupt, just for the listeners to understand a little bit just what cognitive psychology is. Yeah, so like cognitive psychology looks at the brain as a computer, like it's like a processing system. The information in the environment isn't good enough to act upon. So I have to process it. I have to kind of interact with my memories, what I did before I can move, which again, there's a huge novelty problem there, right? You present yourself, present with a new problem that you've never experienced. Well, how do you do it? Oh, I interact with the environment. Well, let's just cut out the middleman, right? Like, let's just do that all the time. I think I, Andrew Wilson, like psych scientist on, on Twitter, he made a really good point and said, we need to look at verbs. He said, like, we don't have memory, we remember things, right? And I was like, okay, like, I like that kind of distinction. That Because, again, like, you do, you do remember things, but that doesn't require the need to store it up here. One example I use in my class quite often is if you compare these two approaches, in cognitive psychology, we would say, again, like, this information that I'm receiving from the environment isn't good enough, so I have to process it in some way. Whereas on the ecological side, it's perfect, right? Like it gives me everything that I need to know to, to act upon that. So why is past information stored in memory better than real-time information? Like to me, that doesn't make sense, right? Like surely like what's happening right now is most important. What happened a while ago in a different context and under different constraints, you're not going to get a good answer from that and then often the rebuttal that i get from students because they're learning like some of the ideas and they'll say yeah but well you just update it with the new information the real-time information i was like again so then why do we need that right why do we need this part over here when you're saying it's the real information that really gets the action that we want to occur it's tough because it's all about exposure when i played we did drills 
a lot of the stuff we did was game-based because that's what our coaches that were volunteers like thought was the best. That's what that's why we went to practice, is to play games. I didn't go to practice to dribble around cones. And even like exposure that I had, I've coached at high schools here, I've coached at clubs, I've coached college here. Like we all keep doing the same thing because we think it's right. And I think coaches need to take that extra step of like, don't think it's right. Find the evidence that it's right. And when you kind of dig a bit deeper, you tend to find that there's not a lot of evidence that those things actually work. It's just, it's almost like agreement by consensus. Hey coach, I wanted to take a quick break from this episode to let you know that we just launched our new website at transformingbeagle.com. The goal of our site was to present basketball coaches and practitioners with the ultimate resource for applying evidence-based ideas. It contains a number of free resources such as blogs, practice activity ideas, as well as some of our paid products including clinics, workshops and courses. The website contains everything you need to take your coaching to the next level. Find the website in our show notes or head to transformingbeagle.com. That was great. And I should have asked you the cognitive psych bit before the teaching question, but I think that really helps people make sense of why things like retrieval practice don't make sense because we're not retrieving anything. Yeah. Reinforce the same thing. Forgetting, yeah, I mean, it's so linearized. Yeah, we're attuning. We're doing a tuning practice, right? I'm attuning to sources of information in the environment. Where are people? I wrote, I've written a paper that like I've not sent it. This is like for Soccer Journal again, right? It's like I, I have to be careful because I need things for tenure, but I also like, like to put things out that I think are useful for the field. So I came up with this idea that, you know, we have principles of play, right? It's like in soccer, US soccer gave us these pyramids put these principles of play at the bottom of the pyramid. They're foundational for our understanding of the game. So I redesigned their diagram where it's all together because they are all together. You're not just attacking, right? There's a transitional period from attack to defense and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I I try and coach with a principle-based approach. If I give them instruction, which are constraints, it's very simple ones. Like when you have space, dribble. When you don't have space and you're under pressure, look to pass because that means there's space somewhere else well that works in every situation like i don't have to say in this phase of the game no like whatever's happening that one of those two things is probably beneficial to do then i started to look a little bit kind of like deeper or maybe more like an umbrella on top of that and came up with this idea of like universal principles so i had five the goal intentions space relationships and transition So the goal of the game is to score and to stop the other team from scoring. I can teach that to six-year-olds. Get in the way, right? Like when they're they're going to goal, just at least get in the way. Yeah, that becomes more complex as you go through the levels of of maybe how how we're going to do that. When we look at the intentions, like what are we actually trying to do? Like, and again, in relation to the opponent. Yes, our intention is to score, but our intention is to create opportunities to score by manipulating the opposition. Like, I love your idea of uh, like dominoes. You're searching for dominoes, right? Once they start falling, we keep going, right? Like, we find that opportunity. Again, that's an intention, right? You're intentionally looking to do that because you know it creates better opportunities to score. Space, spread out when we've got the ball, get tighter when we don't have the ball. Okay, you see that in a, in a basketball game. 
relationships. Where am I? Where am I in relation to my teammates, the opponents, the goal or the basket, right? Like the ball. How does that change my role? Like on the on the court, and then transition. Like you are attacking or defending. There's no in between. If you have the ball, you're attacking. If you don't have the ball, you're defending. So getting them used to that, right? Like there's no rest period in between. So like by using those kind of like universal principles, I can now like go to practice and say, okay, this is, does my practice include these universal principles? Are they learning, not as like maybe a central component of the practice, but are they learning at least most of those five things that we're trying to do? What it does, it helps me reflect on my practice design because now I can look at an activity and be like, ah, like that really only hits space. Right. I'm not really working on them working together, which is important. It's a a team spot. Some of them interact with each other. Right. So my relationship with my teammates and my relationship to the opponent and space really interact with each other because I everybody moves to find their own space. Right. Like it's like in basketball, you'll see kids. They'll run into space if they think they're going to get past to because they want the ball. Nothing wrong with that. The next level for me of like what a really good player is, they do that, but then they also move to create space for other people. And other people then see that affordance to create those opportunities to score again. So like there's some interaction in there, but again, like as an umbrella concept, I find it seems to work a little bit better as as a reflective tool to look at practice design. I love what you said just too about the, you know, feedback is a form of constraint. And a lot of people think we're never instructing, but I think especially there's a key difference. What we're typically doing is making them aware of principles of play. And I might instruct there, but it's far more exploratory where it's a principle of play. It's not a game model where they're doing one thing. And then the key difference is, is then, you know, how they actually move to solve that problem. It's going to be different every time. And we're, we're not offering instruction on how to solve the movement problem. It could be something like dominoes, like you said, you know, we could say, all right, let's, when we have dominoes, we've really got to look to convert this advantage within six seconds. How they do that, it's going to be, there's going to be different things. And we might instruct, we could say, let's look for more cuts to end dominoes, but then it could be from anywhere. It's not just one thing that's going to be the same every time. I'll say thing, I, fa- I catch myself like saying things in practice where I'll say, how can you create space for your teammates, right? So like I'm posing a question to hopefully help them solve that problem a bit different. And again, and, and some of it too is there's some other areas like psychological safety that I think is really important. Even the young ones that I have, they're like petrified of making a mistake. And so I'm like, it's fine, right? Like it's practice. I expect you to do loads of fine, loads of ways that don't work. I said, but you'll find like a few ways that do work. And you also start to recognize when those things work which again, the time element is really important. Like there is a time to dribble. There is a time to pass. There are consequences to that. Like driving to the basket is awesome because what happens is the defense collapses, which then creates space somewhere else. Are there times when driving to the basket doesn't make sense? Yeah, (laughs) right? Like, so you've got to be able to teach that in your activities, right? Like they've got to become attuned to those things of like, when should I do this? When should I not do this? Absolutely. So I guess, Tom, this is, as we wrap up here, my last question is a big one. And it's, it's about, it depends. And this is something we see a lot. I wouldn't, I'd say, you know, yes, we see it in research circles. There's a small group of researchers talking about 
how you know information processing can be blended with a constraint that approach. But I'm probably I think it's more interesting on the practical side where coaches see you know a CLA activity and they think it's just a creative tool without maybe seeing how it fits in as part of a wider methodology. And I say coaches maybe don't see why we would not decompose completely and go to repetitive tasks. We might play a game that's unopposed, especially with young kids, right? But it's, I'll give you an example, like they call it killer in basketball, where the mm-hmm. kids shoot from the free throw line. But typically what you see is like 10, 15 kids in the line always from the same spot. You could do that with play four kids always shooting in a different location. But, yeah. you know, you would not go down to drills and repetitive practice. And a lot of coaches don't understand why. You know, why is it that philosophically we rely on other ideas like task simplification as opposed to really compromising our beliefs and, you know, having to resort to drills? Yeah, we so like the couple of things like there's we believe that information is really important. We talk about information movement couplings, right? Like so we don't move without information, without the perception of information. And we don't perceive without kind of moving too. So I think that's like a key component. Like in our approach, we're much more tied into the idea of the value of information and trying to maintain that in our practice tasks. On the other side of that too, like when we like when you compare like an information processing approach and ecological dynamics, so I see those as the kind of theoretical competitors, so to speak. And, and why I don't buy into the it depends argument, you can mix those theories together. If you look at those two theories, you cannot. They have such fundamentally different tenets. If you believe this, you can't believe this, right? Like for us, we believe in direct perception, right? Like the information out there I can directly interact with to help guide my movement. Information processing doesn't believe in that, right? They believe in indirect perception. So like a fundamental level, they are literally working against each other, right? They're disagreeing at such an important level. You can't do that. Like, can you, it depends methods. Yeah. And like Rob Gray has a really good podcast where he kind of compares those two theoretical approaches and says like it doesn't constrain your toolbox you can use all sorts of different things and again it's about the level of participants that you're working with you're sliding up and down the representative scale and you don't want to spend loads of time in like a full game that would be the most representative but you don't want to spend a lot if any time down in really 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 unrepresentative situations too like i do ones one of the first activities we do every day is a little bit of technical work and it's just a square and they'll do dribbling and passing across the grid so like the three balls start in the middle they dribble to someone on the outside they take the ball they go and find somebody else right so there's three and then once they've got moving i'll throw another ball in for somebody so there's four people moving all the time well they're not against each other but at least now i'm having to kind of find the gaps i'm, I'm trying to help them attune to space right where is the space then we build that into another activity that we call crisscross. So I have one team going north-south on a square, one person each end, three people in the middle. I have one team going east-west, right? So orange going north-south, green going east-west. Ball starts on the outside. You've got to play the ball in. You've got to make one connecting pass minimum within those three people. And then you've got to get it to the other side. And then it comes back, right? Like, And, and if you pass to the outside person, you go and take their spot. So there's there's movement, there's some shape, relationships, where am I in relation to my teammates, to the opposite team, 
they don't tackle each other, right? So it's an unopposed activity, but there's moving parts, right? Then I'll, I will do it maybe two or three times. And on the third time, I'll say, okay, now it's a race. That's a constraint, right? Or that's, so you start to see different, instead of me saying, you need to move faster, <laughs> right? I just make it a race, you against them, and losers do some silly punishment thing that they have to do. You start to see them moving the ball a bit quicker. They make maybe a few more mistakes, right? Because they're panicking when they don't really need to. So that's an unopposed activity. I believe in all the stuff that ecological dynamics and constraints-led approach. But because I work with a certain age group, we spend a little bit of time. Like maybe we do that for 10 minutes. Our practice is 75 minutes. So what do you think we're doing with the rest of the time? It's all game-based, 1v1, 3v2, like versions with different kind of constraints to get them to kind of seep and explore for, for what I want them to look for, right? I'd see enormous value in that time in basketball, especially for coaches with like under 10s, under 12s, under 14s. That's a great way you can still allow players to develop functional solutions in dribbling without having a live defender, but having it variable and having to perceive something. So it's, I definitely see a value to that. And it's a great practical example. So Tom, I wanted to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Like I knew that's why I had to get you on just, but just seeing how you make this so easy for listeners to understand. It's awesome. What's the best way that coaches listening to this can follow you and see the work you're doing? Uh, so I, uh, my work email is T-H-P-A-R-R-Y at I-U So that's my work email if people are interested in just chatting about something. I do try and be relatively active on Twitter. There's like a bit more academics that are kind of getting on there now and sharing some ideas. I try and share some, some good things and then some things that's just like, this annoys me, so I need to tell somebody about it. I just posted one about drills, about <laughs> how to get how to get lots of likes on a drill. And uh, <laughs> so my, my handle on there is Kestrel Psych, so K-E-S-T-R-E-L-P-S-Y-C-H. There's some interest, like there's some threads that I've done that have got quite a lot of attention that have been relatively useful. It talks about some of these sorts of ideas. And again, like people can message me on there and can interact. Tom, I got a good laugh. I just read that last tweet right now. And it's <laughs> hilarious. People have to go check that out. I think we'll have to include it in the show notes because it's, I'm seeing this every day on basketball Twitter, like a drill, which is going viral. And it's, yeah, it's driving me nuts. Yeah. But... I, I use one, I posted one below it about, um, I think it's like, it's Utah basketball, like the college. And it's called the Michigan State Drill, right? And it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing in there that you would do in basketball. They're rebounding, jumping up, rebounding the ball, and then throwing it before they hit the ground, right? It's like, I'd go nuts if my team did that in a game. So, interesting. Tom, thanks so much. Coaches listening, it's Kestrel Psych on Twitter. We'll include it too. And just, yeah, big thanks for everything you're doing, Tom. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Transforming Basketball Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the work we do, head to www.transformingbball.com to access our free resources and help spread these ideas throughout the basketball world. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe and leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. 
We will gladly answer any questions from today's episode via our social media platforms. See you next time on the Transforming Basketball Podcast.